free will was given to us because God wanted to make us like him. That's what you don't understand about God, is he has free will. But he's not ruled by it. And he doesn't, he doesn't hold you and make you do anything. He doesn't make you do anything. He doesn't because you're like him. He would never do that. So what he does is he presents himself, he, he gives you the solution, and he sits and waits for you to make a decision. And the reason why you're in the same spot you were as you were yesterday is because you didn't make a decision yesterday. And so today you find yourself in the same situation. This is the image of God. Why has nobody said this? Why has nobody taught this? This is the way it is in heaven. You have total choice. So God is not in control of this world because he is not that kind of person. He's not a dictator. He created us, but he sits and waits for us to acknowledge him. I mean, is everybody listening to me? I don't know if you're really, I don't know if you're getting it. We have 60% of the body of Christ that does not understand free will. And so they think that God is, in, they say, I mean, I hear it every day. I read the comments. God, you know, I can't believe you said God's not in control. I go, so you call this God? God created the earth. He put us in here. Everything was fine until he put us here. He didn't have any problems. Think about it. He didn't have any problems. The Bible is filled with actions that occurred which were not God's will, nor did he allow them. God allowing everything on earth is only true in the sense that he allows humans to possess a free will. We have the power of choice. I once heard the great Foursquare pastor, Jack Hayford, say regarding this topic, God is sovereign, but in his sovereignty, he has limited himself. He also said, the quest of Jesus Christ on the earth is greatly crippled by wrong notions of the sovereignty of God. Pastor Hayford has a way with words. His point in the second statement was that a wrong concept of the sovereignty of God causes complacency and passivity in people, at times irresponsibility. They believe, whether consciously or unconsciously, that God is in control of everything and will do what he wants, regardless of our involvement. This is so wrong. God works on earth through people. He needs our cooperation. My approach uh, is, that, is that God doesn't control everything. He's in charge of everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, the way I'd illustrate it is say, well, okay, you're a parent, or you're in charge of your household, but you're not in control of everything that happens. Not everything that comes at us is God's will. We have confusion. One of our biggest areas of confusion in the church is concerning the sovereignty of God. We know that God is all-powerful. We know that, that he is in charge of everything. But with that, we make a mistake in thinking he is in control of everything. There's a difference from being in charge and being in control. If you think he is in control of everything, then you have to believe that Hitler was his will, that he was just going to work it for his purposes. 
why would God raise something up to be his will that he empowers you to pray against? You've got a split personality. You've got the father working against the son, the son working against the father. So you have to understand that God has created a system where humanity gets to live, and through partnership, we get to demonstrate and manifest the dominion of God in the earth. He comes at our invitation because he has released the dominion to us. That's why prayer is so essential. Many of the great saints in history believe that God's hands were so-called so handcuffed, but released through prayer. It was released into the situation through the partnership with delegated authority on planet Earth, giving him permission to come. Now, he's God of everything. He's ruler of everything. He can step onto the stage anytime he wants. As well, and... In, in the Lord's sovereignty, sometimes I'll say it to the students, he's so sovereign, he's decided to be in control of what he wants to be and not in control of the things he doesn't want to be. That's good. That's, that's, good how, yeah. that's how big he is. Yeah. And yet, um, uh, for his, his purposes, he's decided this is the way. Like, I'm going to actually empower these beings I've created with real authority. They, they're, they matter. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the level of trust uh, in that is just uh, <clears throat> in, incredible in that moment. For some reason, it's been written into the into the code that we get to be a part of what He's doing on the earth. I mean, the whole the whole beginning, uh, Genesis one: be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. He 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 planted people, humanity, in an adverse climate, and told them to bring change. And He's He's just He's commissioned us to represent Him well. And now, because earlier I mentioned. Um, uh, Jesus modeled what life could be like with no sin and completely empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, because I've been forgiven and the Holy Spirit is in me, it's actually possible to follow the example that Jesus set. So I get to now be a co-laborer in living in purity, mm -hmm. in living in, in, in kindness, affection, love for people, living in power. We get to co-labor with him and demonstrate his authority on the earth. Yeah. And he's glorified through that. I mean, yeah. that, that brings him glory. On today's episode, we are going to be discussing the sovereignty of God, open theism, and the dominion mandate or dominion theology. And this is not, again, an exhaustive podcast episode. It's going to skim the surface, if you will, in talking about this and how this relates to the New Apostolic Reformation. I wanted to play some clips as I normally do at the beginning to kind of give a, a groundwork to work from. And today we're going to be looking at one of Peter Wagner's teachings that was recorded in 2010 that was featured on God TV in Toronto, where the Toronto blessing took place in Canada. The clips I played for you previous to this, um, the first one was Kevin Zadai, and he was talking about free will and that God is not in control, as you just heard. And he goes on to expound on that, uh, that's confusing to say the least in what he's talking about and he's appealing to his own experiences in heaven and what he saw and and saying that God has a free will and that in that because we're created in God that we have a free will and he uh, states that he believes that God is sovereign but he's not in control and we've heard this statement as well from other people such as Bill Johnson who you also heard that was the third clip there were several clips put together from Bill Johnson I'll come back to Bill in just a second but the second clip I played was from Dutch Sheets and this was from a give him 15 daily prayer that he did in January of this year and it was titled as God Sovereign 
At the end of this broadcast, he prays at the end that God has the necessary omniscience and power to transform circumstances brought about by people and Satan. And he says, we will allow nothing less than what will be birthed that is new and good, and that we use the authority given to us to bind and to loose, to forbid and to allow, accepting nothing less. Again, that was his prayer at the end of this. And then, of course, again, I talked about Bill Johnson, and this was during the Rediscover series that they did, and they addressed the sovereignty of God. He and Dan Fairley had a conversation about this, and this included one of the well-known quotes that Bill Johnson is known for, that he says, God is in charge, but he's not in control. And he he says that he believes that God is sovereign while making this statement. Dan Fairley also says something along this lines as well. He words it differently if you caught it in the clip I played. But it essentially goes in the same way that Jack Hayford said that that Dutch Sheets quoted, that God and his sovereignty has limited his sovereignty, and that we get to be a part of what God is doing and to bring him glory. Bill Johnson says this. He also went on to say during this talk with Dan Fairley that God planted people in an adverse climate and told them to bring change. My question is, was the garden adverse prior to sin and rebellion? Because that's the way it makes it sound when he says it. Is, is that what happened? Do we give God permission to come into earth? And is he in need of us? Or have we grossly misunderstood something if we hold to this belief? And these are some of the questions I ask in general when I hear these things that are being taught. Why do we struggle with the sovereignty of God? Do we understand what this means and that there is peace in understanding his sovereignty? Some of these statements seem to allude to what is called open theism. And you may wonder why this is relevant. You may not even know what open theism is. And you may wonder why I would even discuss this topic. And it is because this was a core belief of C. Peter Wagner. And if you're familiar with that name, then you know that he was the one that created the term or coined the term New Apostolic Reformation and identified this as a movement that is currently going on now, and the core belief uh, is the governing restoration of apostles and prophets today that are needed in order for the Great Commission to advance. He not only wrote about it, but he publicly ministered on the subject of dominion theology and open theism. And that is what we're going to be talking about today and listening to some of these clips and evaluating them and going to Scripture and pulling from a couple other sources that I think will be edifying and encouraging as we look at what God's sovereignty really is and that we find comfort in what the Word tells us and resting in His control and in His charge. Hi there, and welcome to the Love Six Scribe podcast, where we talk about biblical truths, current topics, and where we grow in loving the Word and loving the one who is the Word, Jesus Christ. I am Dawn Hill, and I am the Love Six Scribe. Well, we're going to dive right on into this because I've got a lot of ground to cover today, and I hope that you're ready. I hope you have your Bibles so that you can read along as we're going through. And I hope that you're ready to listen to some of this and work through it. Today's topic that we're talking about, again, is God's sovereignty and open theism. And I wanted to look in particular at C. Peter Wagner's teaching in 2010 from a session B held in Toronto, Canada for pastors and leaders, and it was featured on God TV. So I'm going to skip ahead into about an hour and 23 minutes into this because there was worship that took place, the testimonies and and different things that were going on and manifestations. We're going to skip over all of that. And we're going to get directly to the message that C. Peter Wagner brought. We're going to cover a good little chunk of it today and um, talk about what's pertinent here about sovereignty 
and open theism, which you're not going to hear Wagner use that term. However, I am going to read a couple of short excerpts from his book, Dominion, that was republished last year by Destiny Image. And the subtitle was actually changed. The original book said, Dominion, How Kingdom Action Can Change the World. The new one that was republished last year is Dominion, Your Role in Bringing Heaven to Earth. I found that an interesting change in subtitle. One I did find interesting when I was listening to his sermon on this, this message he gave to the people there, is that it coincided that it coincided succinctly with two chapters in his book on Dominion that will touch on here in just a little bit. One has to do with Dominion theology, and the other one actually has to do with open theism is what he calls it. So as we go into the hour and 23 minute mark, he begins to talk about the dominion mandate. That's what the main thing that he focuses on in this sermon or this message that he's giving. And he equates the dominion mandate with the great commission citing Matthew 28, 18. And he says that bringing the gospel of the kingdom is healing the sick, casting out demons, saving souls and transforming the culture. That is one of the highlighted things in dominion theology you'll hear um, you also hear it presented a kingdom now. The seven mountain mandate, I believe, would fall under this as well. It's where the seven mountains of influence, uh, which I've talked about before in a previous podcast. I have the link below in the description you'll find. I'll also have a link to an NAR episode I did about uh, being dedicated to the NAR deniers that goes into more detail to show the fact that NAR is very much a real thing. So I'll have the links for those in the description. But he talks about bringing the gospel of the kingdom, and he um, believes that in order to bring the gospel of the kingdom, you must have these things that are manifesting or that are performed in the earth in order for this to take place. Now, it is important to note what he said is found again in the book Dominion, and I wanted to read these two chapter titles to you, and then we'll come back to this in just a minute. But the first chapter, actually chapter three, he's, uh, it's titled A New Paradigm, Dominion Theology. And so he touches on um, some of these things in this sermon that he gives in this chapter. He never says it's from this book, but you can, you can follow along. And, and there's things that he says that very much coincide with this book. And then chapter four of Dominion, uh, this chapter, and I misspoke, it's not titled Open Theism, but he talks about open theism and subtitles in here, uh, in subheadings. He says, a new theological breakthrough, God has an open mind. So we'll come to those in just a little bit. I'm not going to share huge excerpts from the book because I don't want to have any copyright issues, but I will share smaller ones. But you're going to find if you pay attention to what he's saying and if you have ever read this book, whether the old one or new one that's been republished, they're the same, that you're going to find that, that, that this does follow along together with what he's publicly ministering. Wagner touches on four points of the Dominion Mandate during this message. The first one is that Dominion begins on the first page of the Bible with Genesis. And he goes on to say that Adam was a free moral agent. God created us as free moral agents. I want you to get those three words down if you're taking notes. Free, free moral agents. I'm going to bring this up again because it's, I'll tell you how important it is to be, a, how, not important, how necessary it is for us to be free moral agents because love cannot be forced. Love, you, you cannot make anybody love you. Because if you try that, and they say they do, it can't be really be love. Why? Because love has to come from the heart of the person. And so if it comes from the heart of the person, then there's a choice to love or not to love. And in, with all integrity, 
God had to create Adam and Eve as free moral agents if they were to love him, because that love had to come from them. He couldn't create somebody who he has, who he was forced, who he was forcing to love him. Wagner states that Adam was to govern and that God had established a government on the earth through Adam. Govern, he says, is another word for taking dominion. And he states that the name Adam means humankind and that we were there because Adam represents the whole human race. What am I saying? The whole human race was represented in Adam, which means you were there. So was I. You know what? Every one of us in this room has some of Adam's DNA. Now that we know more about genetics, we were, we were all there. So what God said to Adam, my point is, if he said it to Adam to take dominion, he's also saying it what? To us. Because we're his people, and, uh, and we, we were there. So this is what I mean by uh, the, the dominion mandate. So I wanted to reiterate what he said. He said, Adam, being a free moral agent, had a choice. He had authority to take and authority to give away. It's very strange when he says, you know, we were there in the garden. I don't know what he means by that. I don't know if that's pre-existence, if it was because of coming from the lineage of Adam. I think that there's something, a better way to explain uh, how we are related to Adam. And scripture helps us to understand that through the the presence of sin that came from Adam. I think that's that's a better way to explain it. But the way he explains it, it's it kind of sounds mystical, and it sounds in a way of, of pre-existing, and we did not pre-exist. We have not pre-existed. Um, that, that is not a biblical teaching, and I don't know if he meant that, but I'm just wanting to throw that out there. Um, the second thing that he covered as far as the dominion mandate, he says the enemy has attacked the dominion mandate since day one. Not always have thought of it this way, but Satan entered the Garden of Eden for one main reason, and that was to usurp the dominion over the world that God had given to Adam. Sometimes we dilute that idea, and we say that Satan entered the Garden of Eden to tempt Adam to sin. That's true, but that's only a small fraction of what Satan was really after. Satan was after the dominion that God had given to Adam. Now, let me explain a little bit about Satan. Wagner goes on to discuss the rebellion of Satan and being thrown out of heaven. And he states that he had power and authority, but when he was thrown out of heaven, he lost that authority. Wagner says that Satan wanted authority, and that is why he approached Adam and Eve, because he still had power, but he said he wanted authority. And he says that Adam had authority to take dominion and to give it away, and he had two choices, to obey God or to obey Satan. Now, I want to state this seems to create a false dichotomy. When I heard him say this statement, immediately I kind of thought, is that really true? Did Adam have two choices and the choices that he's presenting? Was it to obey God or to obey Satan? And I believe this is a false dichotomy because Satan is not the equal antithesis to God. Satan is not the opposite of God. He is a created being, and he has only as much power as God permits him to have. Consider the options that Adam had were to obey God or to disobey God, because that was ultimately what was on display and what was presented. Adam listened to his wife, who was deceived by the serpent, and Adam knew the instructions of God, and he rebelled them. He disobeyed, and he rebelled against God, and because of that, sin entered, and death entered the world because of what Adam did. 
And I think that Romans 5, verse 12, is a really good passage for us to look at that helps us to understand this. It, it helps us to see a couple of things here. And so I want to read this to you. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And this passage goes on to talk about the distinction between um, death in Adam and life in Christ. So if what Wagner is saying here has to do with dominion, because you're going to hear, if you listen to this message or have heard anything Wagner said, you're going to hear him make these distinctions and saying, well, there's a pastoral way to look at these verses, and there's an apostolic way to look at these verses, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But his apostolic way is always going to go back to societal transformation, to dominion, reclaiming dominion, reconciling God's kingdom back to God. He says that at one point in this message. There's different areas that it all it all culminates back for him to this apostolic message of dominion. And though he will acknowledge that the pastoral message is valid and it's necessary as far as the gospel and saving souls and addressing sin, he believes that there is a far greater message to share, which is the apostolic message. And that is societal transformation and taking dominion as, as human beings. So my question is, why didn't Paul who wrote the book of Romans, why didn't Paul say anything about what Wagner states Satan ultimately came for, which was dominion? He says nothing about that in Romans 5. He makes it very clear that what Adam did was brought sin, transgression. He he brought in the greatest transgression that ultimately spiritually infected the whole human race, which was sin. And that's why Christ came. It is because sin and rebellion against God were the issue. Romans 5 even shows the difference, as I said, between death coming through Adam and life coming through Christ, and that we can reign in life through Christ, but this is not in the way that Wagner and others mean to reign. The one reigning over our lives and in our lives is not us, but Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. See, we've got to remember who the, who the king is here and who is ruling and reigning in the life of a believer. It's not Satan. It's Christ. That's the victory. That's the war that's been won that we have a victor who is Christ, who has defeated Satan, he has defeated sin, he has defeated death. That's good news. And as a believer, that's what we stand on. And we know who is reigning in our lives, and it's not us, it's Christ. And so make no mistake, Satan is the ruler of this world at this time, most assuredly, because Scripture tells us this, and we'll talk about that a little bit later too. But he cannot do anything apart from the sovereignty of God, and he operates within boundaries set by God. His power over the world is found in unbelievers, not believers. I'm going to say that one more time. The power of Satan over the world is found in unbelievers, not in believers. As Wagner goes on, about an hour and 42 minutes in, he talks about that Adam made a choice because he is a free moral agent. Let's listen to what he has to say a little bit on that. And Satan knew this. So Adam could obey God or he could obey Satan. He had the choice right there. We read about it in the, in, in the, in the Bible. And Adam made the worst possible choice. He gave his dominion to Satan. And that put him and us, don't forget, we were there. It put him and us under the dominion of Satan. 
from the, from the first page of the Bible. Following this, Wagner goes on to talk about uh, how miserable the world was before Christ came to earth. And he said God's plan had not yet materialized. And that right there, I think, is a subtle hint of open theism. I could be, I'm speculating, but when you hear him say these things publicly like that, that God's plan had not yet materialized, and he said, was this God's plan for Adam to sin? He says that at one point. No, he says it, it, it was not God's plan. Again, that is him alluding to open theism, and you'll hear more about this in, his, in the book that we'll touch on. He elaborates in the book about how he was very frustrated when he was in seminary and that he was being indoctrinated with certain teachings of, the, of Calvinistic teachings and um, that of believing that God was completely sovereign and that um, he, he was frustrated and staying up at two o'clock in the morning with some of his buddies in seminary and talking about these things and that he was so annoyed and frustrated with these beliefs. And it wasn't until later on when he read a book by Harold Eberly and another author called Victorious Eschatology that he began to embrace something far different and that he began to not be as frustrated and it answered the questions that he had and he embraced the doctrine of open theism. So as we go on through this, we'll see that he talks about in number three for the dominion mandate, he says the second Adam permanently reversed history. And he says that world history has done a 180 two times. The second Adam uh, permanently reversed history. Now think about this with me. And I'll, I'll bet you that I'm accurate on this, that world history has changed 180 degrees twice. Not once, not three times. World history has changed 180 degrees twice. It changed 180 degrees when Adam gave his dominion to Satan. Was that God's plan? No. But it changed the other 180 degrees when Jesus came to retake dominion and turn history back around to God's original plan. Now, it's not finished yet. That's one of the reasons I'm up here teaching this, because I'm, I'm leading up to a challenge, as you can well imagine. But uh, it's not finished yet. But we're clearly heading in the right direction. And we're on the winning side. Sometimes, you know, you might say, well, we've got to set back here, and that doesn't matter. We're on the winning side. Okay? Now, think of this. Why did Jesus come? Why did he leave heaven and come to earth? Well, there are many reasons, but here's one that says right in the Bible. He says, for this purpose, the Son of Man was manifested. For this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil, which I've just been describing. Jesus came to destroy those works of the devil. That's in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8, if you're, um, if you're jotting down. Well, like any good Berean, we are going to open up the Bible to 1 John chapter 3. And we're going to read a little bit. We're going to look at how this chapter talks about children of God. And beginning with verse 1, I'm just going to read it to you. So you can hear what it says in context because he's quoting half of 1 John 3, 8. He didn't quote the whole verse. He quoted half of it. And he's saying this has to do with dominion, dominion mandate. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. 
Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, this is verse 8, is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So you can see the context here in 1 John 3, 8. This is a simple exercise of just opening the scripture and reading it for yourself and making sure that you are understanding what the word says, reading it in context, reading verses before, reading verses after, and making sure that what you're being taught is is agreeing with scripture, not agreeing with your opinion, not agreeing with um, what you feel that it should say. This is merely reading the text, and the text is referring to sin, and lawlessness. And it's making a distinction between those who are children of God and those who are children of the devil. That's a very simplistic reading of it. It's it's talking about the sin and, the, and that distinction. It's not talking about reclaiming lost dominion. God never lost his dominion. And that's the thing here. When we even look at the book of Genesis, God never lost his dominion. He never did. And he doesn't need permission to come into this earth and God forgive me, and he has forgiven me for the times that I even made such claims and and prayed such ways and giving God permission and the Holy Spirit to give him permission and inviting inviting the Holy Spirit to to come when he's already indwelling believers. It's, you know, things that we say that they sound so pious and so super spiritual, and they really are spiritually ignorant. Um, I will claim that. I don't know if you will, but I'll claim that. There's some spiritually ignorant things that I said that do not agree with scripture and scripture is the final authority. And so I I just wanted to point that out to you. This has nothing to do with dominion. This is about uh, sin and making that distinction of who belongs to God and who doesn't. Wagner goes on to discuss Luke 19.10 right after this, and he makes a distinction between pastoral preaching and apostolic preaching when looking at this verse. And this is where he first mentioned the difference that he notes in that. And he says, pastoral preaching focuses on the death of Jesus and the salvation of souls. But apostolic preaching takes the verse literally, is what he says. That's that's the word he used. He says, apostolic preaching takes the verse literally, claiming that what was lost was dominion. And he stated that he is not denying the need for the gospel, but the bigger picture of why Jesus came was for dominion. He also believes that Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20 is talking about reconciling the dominion of the world back to God. And I would encourage you just with that exercise that we did, take a look at Luke 19, 10 in context, do some study on it, and also look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, and see if you come back from both of those thinking they have anything to do with us taking dominion. 
The last point that he makes with the dominion mandate in his message here in 2010 was that Jesus delegated establishing his kingdom to us. And he focuses on Acts 1.8. He says in there that they're highlighting the, the area of you will be my witnesses. And he goes on to talk about other churches in the world, such as in Hong Kong and in Singapore and other areas that are transforming society and the importance of this in dominion. So that is pretty much the, the areas I wanted to cover in that sermon that are uh, that pertain and are relevant to the subject today of God's sovereignty and open theism. And let me just reiterate this again. This is not an exhaustive episode. There's no way because the, the topic of open theism is a difficult topic. It branches out in different beliefs is my understanding when I looked into this. So there's no way to get into this in an exhaustive way. This is merely to skim the surface, to show you the elements of open theism that Wagner most certainly believed in. And it, it you kind of wonder when you hear some of these other leaders, if they are also believing and, and grabbing onto open theism. Now, I want to read some of the excerpts from the book Dominion that was republished in 2022 by Destiny Image called Dominion that was written by C. Peter Wagner. And chapter three, as I talked about, this deals with Dominion theology. And I've already talked about some of the the history, his personal history that led up to this. But he makes some statements in this chapter, such as on page 58, he says, Quote, I don't find the same level of reverence for theology in most churches associated with the New Apostolic Reformation. And he talks about Wagner Leadership Institute and that it was designed to train adults who are already in ministry. And that his thought was that mature students that they were teaching would know better than they would what they needed for improving their own ministry than some faculty committee might be able to conclude. So they decided that if they offered traditional courses in systematic theology, epistemology, or the history of dogma, that no one would sign up for them. And then he goes on to say, quote, I'll go one step further and predict that theologians per se will likely become relics of the past as the second apostolic age progresses. Now, as he goes on and he talks about his own personal history and his own wrestling with these ideas of God's complete sovereignty. Um, He talks about, on page 63, the nuts and bolts of dominion theology begins in the first chapter of the Bible with Genesis 1. And he goes on on page 64 to say, God not only created the earth, but he established a government for the earth with humankind being with beginning with Adam and Eve as the governors. And this should sound familiar because this came from the message that he preached in Toronto in 2010. He says, God gave Adam and Eve full authority to take dominion in his name, but these were not puppets. They were free moral agents. What does this mean? This means that they had a choice. God would not coerce them. On the one hand, they could take dominion, but on the other hand, they had the authority to give their dominion away. And he says that dominion was what Satan was essentially after. And he again, he says things that we've already talked about already, that we've already heard from his own mouth uh, talking about dominion. And he says, our traditional interpretation is that Satan wanted to break Adam and Eve's relationship with God and thereby introduce original sin, which would then be transmitted genetically to all their human progeny through the ages so that the people would not go to heaven, but to hell. That was certainly one of Satan's goals, but an even greater one was to usurp the dominion over the world that God had given to Adam. I would like to know what is far greater? Is it the loss of someone's soul or is it them obtaining dominion on the earth? Which, which one is, has a greater uh, consequence of eternal significance? 
just ponder on that. Um, he says under power and authority in this chapter that God would not have given it back to him, but Adam now could when he's talking about delegated authority. A little bit lower, he talks about the so-called apple, and he says, would he choose to obey God, referring to Adam, or would he go Satan's way? When Satan convinced him to disobey God, history was suddenly changed. Adam's authority to take dominion over God's creation was passed over to Satan. Worse yet, Adam put himself and the whole future human race under the authority of Satan as well. And he elaborates more on the uh, miserable conditions of the human race before Jesus came. Again, if I sounded like a broken record, it's because I'm trying to help you understand that this was written in his book, Dominion. So he was preaching from a book he had written on this subject. He elaborates more on the, the preaching of Billy Graham, for example, about pastoral preaching. But he talks about how he would like to think of um, the apostolic dimension to Jesus's death on the cross. And he quotes Joseph Matera, which he also does in this message that he ministered in 2010 from this book that Joseph Matera had written. And this is the quote that he states from Joseph Matera. The main purpose of Jesus dying on the cross was not so that you could go to heaven. The main purpose of his death was so that his kingdom can be established in you, so that as a result, you can exercise kingdom authority on the earth and reconcile the world back unto him. End quote. He talks in chapter 3 about the works of the devil, that he says that God sent Jesus in true human flesh to do what Adam failed to do, that Jesus lived a life of purity and obedience to the Father. He was the only human being who ever lived who qualified to take back the dominion from Satan that Adam had lost. And he said that Jesus died to reverse history once for all. And as he goes on, um, he quotes Miles Monroe about colonization in chapter 3. And at the end of this chapter about dominion theology, he says, quote, even though Jesus came and changed history, he is waiting for us to do our part in bringing restoration to pass in real life. Meanwhile, he is reigning through us until he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Referencing 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 25. He ends the chapter with, it is our task to become spiritual and social activists until Satan's dominion is ended, end quote. Now, Open Theism, chapter 4, where he talks about God has an open mind, page 76, about the all-powerful or omnipotent God. So on page 76 of this chapter, uh, Wagner says that the all-powerful or omnipotent God will use his power in one way if we do certain things, and he will use it in another way if we don't, and says the outcome of certain human efforts will not hinge on whether God has or doesn't have power. It hinges on the choices that he allows us believers to make. And he talks about the openness of God. This is what he believes. Uh, he said what some people call the openness of God and that his opinion is what is called open theism and that he believes it provides the most biblical and most helpful theological framework for doing our part in seeing the kingdom come to earth as Jesus prayed in the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you'll also see that that is highlighted in Bethel's teachings and other teaching. It's not just Bethel. I don't want to pick on Bethel, but that you will see this prominently in a lot of teachings um, in this type of movement, that the focus is to, to extract this from the Lord's Prayer and to highlight this and to say, well, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to call kingdom the kingdom of heaven down. We are to bring heaven to earth. This is what we are mandated to do. This is the dominion mandate. So this is part of dominion theology when he's teaching this. He talks about that um, 
in order to understand dominion theology, that we have to go to the Garden of Eden. So we're going to do the same in understanding open theism. And he says on page 77 in chapter four of dominion, quote, Adam was intentionally created a free moral agent. God wanted Adam to love him, but true love has to be the choice of the individual. True love is never forced. That's why the choice was up to Adam. Again, he taught this publicly. And he says that um, Adam made a bad choice. He questions what was God's role in this choice? Did God make Adam do what he did? Did God create Adam in order that he would sin so that God could eventually send a redeemer? Did God know before he created him that Adam would not choose to love him, but rather yield to Satan? Did God create Adam to take dominion over creation, knowing that within a short period of time, Satan would usurp that dominion and become the God of this age? Did God consciously create the human race while knowing that the great majority of the people he made in his image would end up in hell instead of in heaven? These are all questions that Wagner's asking in this book. And he discusses about how there was the belief of classical theism, which was he was familiar with and that he believed for a long time, but it frustrated him and in seminary. And then he goes on to talk about open theism. And he says what was different between classical theism and open theism is that it was a different understanding of God. The classical theism had led him to believe that because God was sovereign, he had all things under control. He was all powerful. He had predetermined and he knew ahead of time everything that would ever happen in history. However, he says that open theism provides another way of thinking about God and that it, it's like classical theism because it starts out with the understanding that God is sovereign, but that it, it veers off a little bit in saying that God decided ahead of time that certain things would happen no matter what, and that he also decided to leave some other things open and depending on the choices that human beings would make. And he poses this question here, isn't God sovereign enough to limit his own sovereignty if he wants to? Why might God wish to limit his own sovereignty? Simply put, to maintain his integrity, Wagner states. He says it only makes sense that in certain situations, God would decide not only to keep things open, but even to choose to prevent himself from knowing ahead of time what choices we would make. So in open theism from what he believes, he believes that God has limited his sovereignty by by not knowing certain things, that God has decided not to know certain things, know certain decisions that people make, know things that will happen in history, um, and in a sense, honoring the free will of man in doing so. And he says because of Adam's bad choice, God then decided to go to plan B. He didn't create Adam specifically for plan B, which is where he ended up. So he believes that Jesus coming to die on the cross was plan B. He says, could it be that God chose not to know what decision they would make ahead of time? Adam and Eve is who he's referring to. If so, his plan A clearly was that they would have dominion. But because of Adam's bad choice, God then decided to go to plan B, which was the salvation that Christ brings. So there's other things that he talks about. He goes into more detail about God changing his mind and, and what he believes that open theism is an open question. So I won't get into all that for time's sake. But that gives you an idea of where he stood on open theism. Now, I believe that within the, the NAR movement and those who hold to such teachings as God not being in control but being in charge, free moral agents, this goes beyond Arminianism. I mean, this, this extends beyond Arminianism. And Wagner even touches on in this book that there was a meeting of an evangelical theological society um, I believe back in the 1990s, and if you look this up, uh, you'll also find a video where Wayne Grudem talks about this, that there were several men, Greg Boyd and two others, John Sanders, and the, the third name escapes me, um, Clark Pinnock. Um, they were 
the ones that were known for writing about and holding to the belief, advocating for open theism. And Wagner talks about in his book that there was actually a meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society where they wanted to address these issues because he alludes even again alludes to this that some people go as far as to say that open theism is is heresy and that this is what happened in that theological society um, with these men and some of the things that were being stated to them so I believe that people in this movement these leaders in this movement that that state these things what we are hearing and seeing from these teachers is that they are influenced by open theism this is a speculation that I have so why does this matter Well, it's a pretty big deal (laughs) because when you start questioning God's sovereignty and start saying, well, you know, I believe that that God limits his sovereignty and not knowing the things of that's what's going to take place and what people are going to do. It doesn't agree with scripture. It doesn't agree with his his nature. It does not agree with the attribute of his sovereignty. I want to share with you some some resources that I found regarding this topic, just to kind of share some understanding of what God's sovereignty is, and then play a couple of clips from some Bible teachers that will offer some help and then have some closing thoughts. Now, I have a, a Holman's Bible Dictionary, and this is this is a, a general dictionary that you can look up some biblical words and and get some un, gain some better understanding. But just to offer this as another resource, when I looked up the sovereignty of God in here, I'm going to share some things that it says in here about it. It says in here, the sovereignty of God is the biblical teaching that God possesses all power and is the ruler of all things, citing Psalm 135, verse 6, and Daniel 4, verses 34 and 35. God rules and works according to his eternal purpose, even through events that seem to contradict or oppose his rule. And it goes on to um, break this down into into headings such as biblical teaching, and that a scripture emphasizes God's rule in three areas, creation, human history, and redemption. And that scripture testifies clearly to God's rule over his creation in Genesis 1. Isn't that ironic? Uh, Genesis 1, including Christ's sustaining and governing of all things. And the Bible also affirms that God rules human history according to his purpose, from ordinary events in the lives of individuals to the rise, affairs, and fall of nations. And scripture depicts redemption as the work of God alone. God, according to his eternal purpose, takes the initiative in the provision and application of salvation and enabling man's willing acceptance. And in this dictionary, it goes on and has five different issues um, that seem to be at odds with the claim of God's absolute rule, which is evil, free will, human responsibility, evangelism, and prayer. And so these five issues it addresses here, let's go to free will. Let's see what it says about that since we're on that particular subject. We'll, we'll touch on that. And um, I encourage you to check out this Bible dictionary to look at the others if you, would, if you choose to do so. But under the subheading for sovereignty of God, sovereignty and free will, it says some see contradiction between divine sovereignty and human free will, an often misunderstood term. Man's will is free in that he makes willing choices that have actual consequences. Yet man's will is not morally neutral. Rather, it is in bondage to sin, and without divine grace, he chooses freely and consistently to reject God. Scripture affirms both divine sovereignty and man's willing activity. Pharaoh's rise to power was entirely in accordance with his own will. It was also entirely by the hand of God. The crucifixion of Christ was fully the free act of sinful men, and at the same time, fully the purpose of God. We see this mentioned in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, and Acts 4, 27 and 28. Conversions are reported in Acts in a manner consistent with both concepts. 
and they cite Acts 13.48 and Acts 16.14. So I wanted to share that source so you can take a look at that, and you can look at the other areas if you like. The other source I wanted to read from was from a book I have by A.W. Pink called The Sovereignty of God. The first chapter, he defines sovereignty, and so I wanted to read some of this, and A.W. Pink says, The sovereignty of God, what do we mean by this expression? We mean the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the godhood of God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the most high, doing according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, so that none can stay his hand or say unto him, What dost thou? To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the Almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat his counsels, thwart his purpose, or resist his will. And he goes on to say, how different is the God of the Bible from the God of modern Christendom? The conception of deity which prevails most widely today, even among those who profess to give heed to the scriptures, is a miserable caricature, a blasphemous travesty of the truth. The God of the 20th century is a helpless, effeminate being who commands the respect of no really thoughtful man. The God of many a present-day pulpit is an object of pity rather than of awe-inspiring reverence. To say that God the Father has purposed the salvation of all mankind, that God the Son died with the expressed intention of saving the whole human race, and that God the Holy Spirit is now seeking to win the world to Christ, when as a matter of common observation, it is apparent that the majority of our fellow men are dying in sin and passing into a hopeless eternity, is to say that God the Father is disappointed, that God the Son is dissatisfied, and that God the Holy Spirit is defeated. We have stated the issue baldly, but there is no escaping the conclusion. To argue that God is quote, trying his best to save all mankind, but that the majority of men will not let him save them, is to insist that the will of the creator is impotent and that the will of the creature is omnipotent. To throw the blame, as many do, upon the devil does not remove the difficulty. For if Satan is defeating the purpose of God, then Satan is almighty and God is no longer the supreme being. And Pink says, to argue that man is a free moral agent and the determiner of his own destiny and that therefore he has the power to checkmate his maker, is to strip God of the attribute of omnipotence. We affirm that he is under no rule or law outside of his own will and nature, that God is a law unto himself, and that he is under no obligation to give an account of his matters to any. Amen and amen. <laughs> I thought that was really good. I read that and I thought, wow, that's got a, that packs a punch right there. Now, as we go on, I wanted to share um, a couple of clips from Steve Lawson. He talked about the sovereignty of God. And so let me share a couple of those with you to give you something to chew on. The Lord reigns and he does. It is not Satan who reigns. There are so many Christians who cringe thinking there's a demon behind every bush. And while Satan is greater than we are, Satan is nothing compared to our God. And there are Christians who literally cringe as though the devil is sovereign. No, there is only one sovereign, and that is our God. Men are not reigning. It says the Lord reigns. Circumstances are not reigning. The Lord reigns. Good luck is not reigning. Bad luck is not reigning. Fate, blind fate is not reigning. There are no accidents. There are no random occurrences. Those are all pagan myths. There is only one who is upon the throne in heaven, and there is only one who is actively reigning, and that is the Lord Himself. It's in the present tense. 
the Lord reigns. It's not as though the Lord used to reign in Old Testament times when He would part the Red Sea and smash the walls of Jericho and, and He's on sabbatical now and doesn't seem to be doing such demonstrative things. Uh, it's not that He's not reigning now, but He will reign at the second coming of Christ. And oh, then He will really begin to reign. No, every moment of every day, God is reigning. The God who reigned in the Old Testament is the God who is reigning in the New Testament, is the God who will reign at the second coming, is the God who will reign throughout all eternity future. Every time this verse is picked up and read, the Lord reigns, it is a testimony and a clear statement that God is presently reigning in the heavens above. I will provide the full link to the sovereignty of God that he ministered there so that you can listen to that and be edified in that and encouraged by the word of God. I also wanted to offer several passages for us to consider as we think about the sovereignty of God. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Amos 3, 6, Is a trumpet blown in a city, and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Psalm 103, 19, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. These are just some of the passages I wanted to share with you, and I encourage you on your own in your own personal Bible study time that you look at these and study them out and evaluate them, and, there, and there's many more that could be referenced. But right now, I want to play one last clip, and this is from John Piper. He was asked this question, is God sovereign over my free will? I want you to listen to some of the things that he says and some of the, the verses that he also references. Self-willed faith does not bring about the new birth, just the opposite. The new birth brings about faith. Faith is therefore not the result of human self-determination, but of new birth. One more reason, among many, many more. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. No king anywhere on earth has the power of ultimate self-determination. So I don't think such a thing exists except in God. God is ultimately self-determining, but man is not ultimately and decisively self-determining. Nevertheless, we are responsible, accountable for our preferences and our choices. If God is sovereign over the human will, are we responsible? Yes, we are, and the Bible says so over and over again. Our choices are our choices. They are true choices. We have a will. Our will is active. We are genuine moral agents. We will, as Jesus says, give an account for every careless word, Matthew twelve thirty six. Indeed, all of our preferences and choices and behavior, according to Romans 14, 12, we'll give an account of. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. Human beings do not have ultimate self-determination, and we will all give an account to God for our preferences and our choices. So instead of speaking of the will as free or not, I prefer to speak of people as free or not, because that's the way the Bible does. For freedom, Christ has set us free. 
Paul says in Galatians 5.1, Christians are free from the bondage to sin and from the oppressive demand of having to perform our own salvation. Maybe the best way to end would be to, to quote this great liberation from Romans 6.17. Thanks be to God. That's so important. And that's the way we should live as believers, with a heart brimming like this. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I appreciated what John Piper said there about this particular topic, and he has others that have been asked about the God about God's sovereignty. Um, and uh, I would encourage you, you can look at those on your own and the question and answers that he has for those, and I you probably will find them insightful. Again, there are many different verses that we can go to. We can even look at John six uh, when Jesus is talking to the people, and he acknowledges that uh, about Judas. He knew those that believed in him and those that did not, and he he knew about what Judas would do and that he was the son of perdition. We can even look at um, Acts 4, Acts 4, verses 23 through 28, and when you're seeing the, the believers praying for boldness after Peter was released, even in verse 24, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And we can even see in verses such as that and and many others the sovereignty of God on display in the midst of the fallen world and what is going on. And so I wanted to to share this with you today to give you some things to consider. And here's some thoughts I wanted to share with you before we close, as I often do, just my, my own ponderings <laughs> that I think in my time as I'm considering these topics. Wagner and others make a point to say that Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world. I mean, I heard that numerous times. I've heard those teachings for years about, about that. I'm sure you have as well. And often people will point to Matthew 4. Um, Wagner did this, and he emphasized the third temptation in the wilderness where Satan offers all the kingdoms of the earth. Uh, In one of the Gospels, it says that, that he was able to see all these kingdoms at one point that would ever exist, and he offers them to Jesus if he will throw himself down and worship him. And we know what happens is that Jesus did not fall to that temptation in the wilderness when this was presented to him. And we know that Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We can read in 1 John five nineteen where John says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We can read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, that Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. And so I reflect on all these things that are said in, in these areas of the New Testament and I reflect on what Jesus said. He called Satan the, the ruler of this world, the, the little G, the little God of this world. And the question 
came to me when when I'm thinking about dominion theology and what Peter Wagner and others teach that, you know, we now have dominion, that God has given us dominion, that we lost the dominion in the garden to Satan, but now we have reclaimed it because Jesus, that's what he came back to do. But I find myself asking, why would the apostles write these things about Satan after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, seemingly ignoring the teaching that dominion had been given back to us? Why would they continue to say that the devil is the ruler of this world, the God of this world, if we have been given back dominion? And I want you to consider this. Consider who is sovereign and who has been given authority. It is Jesus Christ. And as believers in Christ, we are not ruled by Satan. As I mentioned earlier, we are ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ. The world, however, is ruled by the devil, and they are caught in his snare and in his bondages. And people will say that God is not in control while ascribing verses stated about God's power and control lying in the hands of human beings. And what results is that man is made to be God here. And I'll say this, I do not know the God of whom people like this speak. Every time I hear these different types of teachings that are coming out that are perverting the scripture, they're twisting the scripture, they're negating the scripture, they're elevating experience, they're elevating extra biblical revelation or alleged extra biblical revelation. There is this exaltation of man that's being done, even though that will not be admitted but man is being elevated here to godlike status when you say, oh, we give God permission to come into the world because he gave us authority. I don't know the God that you're speaking of. When you say that, that God has given us dominion back and that he, he needs us in order for him to be able to do what he needs to do in the earth, I don't know what God you're speaking of. When these claims are made like this and to say, well, you know, God had a plan B and that the redemption through Christ was not laid before the foundations of the earth. I don't know what God you're speaking of because that is not the God that's testifying in scripture to say that God in his sovereignty has limited his sovereignty and that he has limited his foreknowledge of circumstances seems to negate his divine omniscience and his omnipotence. And he knows the end from the beginning. Nothing happens outside of his sovereignty. God is not the author of sin, He does not cause people to sin. He does not cause evil. And yet he will work all things for the good of those who love him for his glory, both things we perceive as good and things we do not perceive as good. That's the problem is that we actually we have a problem. I heard someone say, you know, that's God's problem. Kevin said, I said that, that this was the problem. God doesn't have a problem (laughs) that again, I don't know what God you're speaking of. God does not have a problem. We have the problem. The solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sin entered the world because of man's rebellion. The solution, the answer is Jesus Christ. This has been the answer from before the foundations. There are things that we don't understand, and we need to be okay with not understanding because we're not God. There are things, as finite beings created by Almighty God, we will not fully comprehend or understand. And this should help us to solidify who is the potter and who is the lump of clay. We do not create a God of our own understanding to explain away our pain, our suffering, and our unanswered questions and our frustrations at 2 a.m. in a seminary school. We trust that God is sovereign over all, and we are to rejoice and are comforted in the fact that as his children who have placed their faith in Christ to reconcile them back to the Father and to clothe us in his righteousness, we are not under the tyranny of the devil any longer. 
We have been brought out of darkness, and we are to shine the light of Christ in proclaiming his gospel and the truth of his word. And we do so in easy times and in difficult times, resting in God's sovereignty. So with that, I hope that this gives you something to think about, to study, and to continue to understand and to rest in as children of God if your faith is placed in Christ to save you from the wrath of God and from eternal punishment. Rest in his sovereignty, my friend. Rest in it. His word is replete with his sovereignty. And we are to be comforted and we are to rest in the fact that we are not in charge or in control. And thank God for that. If you've enjoyed this podcast and it's helped you, I hope that you'll consider giving a five-star review and that you'll share it with others. And also, if you have any questions or any thoughts or any anything that you want to share, you can feel free to email me at dawn at lovesubscribe.com. And as always, I've enjoyed being on this episode with you, and I enjoy learning along with you as we go through the Word of God and being encouraged by what the Word of God has to say in the proper context and learning from solid Bible teachers and learning from other resources that help us to understand the Word of God better and growing in our fellowship with Christ as we do, as we, as we go through the Word. And I hope that you'll rest in God's sovereignty. Be blessed today by the truth of God's Word. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me on Facebook and on Instagram at lovesickscribe. And if you enjoy reading, feel free to hop on over to lovesickscribe.com and subscribe to my blog. I've enjoyed being with you today, and I look forward to our next time together as we talk about biblical truths, current topics, and we continue to grow together in loving the Word and loving the one who is the Word, Jesus Christ. Blessings to you.